In the fall of 1970, my parents, sister, and I were leaving Virginia for my father to study for a year in New York City. My older sister had completed second grade, so she wasn't the problem. I was, and that wasn't atypical. At age five, I had finished one year of kindergarten, but my birthday was in October. I'm, so in Virginia, I would have had to attend another year of kindergarten because I had missed the September 30th cutoff date to start first grade. In New York, though, the cutoff date's November, so my parents had a decision to make. Another year of kindergarten or toss the kid into first grade. Because parents in general think their children are smarter than they really are, I started first grade. So this is background for my conversation, for the conversation my husband and mom and I were having on Christmas Day last week. There have been multiple times when my mom has said she wished that she had held me back for that year. She doesn't say that because I remain immature and slow, but I know that's what she means. <laughs> it's okay, I've come to accept it. Luckily, you have too. Regardless, since my husband and I met our, when we were both seniors in college, when she said it again last week, Brian sweetly chimed in and pointed out that if they hadn't sent me to first grade then, then he and I might never have met. Wasn't that sweet? So stop saying that, Mom. <laughs> when we look back at our lives, we can see multiple instances where a different decision might have changed or would have changed the paths of our lives. Now, there are positive outcomes, like me meeting my husband, and there are negative outcomes, like the Virginia Tech football kicker Cody Jernell, who allegedly decided to accompany friends as they broke into a home. And that one decision slammed the brakes on a successful trajectory his life was taking and slingshotted him in the other direction. Often we can see through this and other decisions that they affect not only us, not only the people who are involved in the decision itself, but dozens of people around us. Janelle's decision affects not only him, but the tech football team, their fans, and potentially their season. The fact that I married Brian means that if I had married somebody different, we wouldn't have Noah and Lauren, and you know, the repercussions go on and on from our decisions. Now, let me make a strange analogy. In the same way that a football team's fate is tied to the preparation and success and good decisions of each player, the redemption of the world is tied to one player, whose name is Jesus. When Mary and Joseph follow the law of Moses and present Jesus as a sacrifice in the temple, God has ordained that they meet two people there who are now a part of our Christian history. First, we're introduced to Simeon with his credentials that he is righteous and devout and the Holy Spirit rested on him. That same spirit guides him to the temple where he encounters Mary and Joseph and the Messiah for whom he had been waiting all those years. Simeon praises God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace. Now I can die in peace because I have seen your salvation. I have seen your Messiah. Luke clues us in 
that this baby will have an effect not only on his own people, the Jews, but on the whole world, because Simeon says that this child will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and for glory to your people Israel. And then there's Anna, the story directly following it. Luke likes to present stories with a male and a female. And so here we have Simeon, and then we have Anna, who's a prophet in the temple. And she worships there with fasting and praying night and day. And she too comes over and begins praising God and speaking about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Their decisions to express what they felt and believed and experienced about Jesus made a difference in helping us know, even 2,000 years later, who this baby would become. Is it sacrilegious to say they're sort of like a pregame show? They set the stage and help us know what to expect. And then Paul writes about it too when he writes to the Galatians. And he writes about this spirit of adoption in which we can call God Abba and Father. Now, Abba sounds like, you know, a Swedish rock band or something. But um, originally, the word is Aramaic, and it's the intimate term for daddy, or the intimate term for father, which we would say daddy. And so you hear a new intimacy between Jesus and his father that people really had not known and not experienced. God had been more distant, but Jesus calls him daddy. And so we are no longer slaves, but children, and if children, then heirs through God. Jesus becomes our brother and brings us up to that level as well. I can think of several families in which there have been adoptions. You probably can too. Um, Several of my friends from school have adopted children from either India or China. And especially one comes to mind who adores his daughter so much that it's inspiring to see. And I think he loves this daughter more than anyone could love. I don't know if I should say that, but just as much as, at least, a flesh-and-blood child. Just the, the depth, the power, the intimacy of that love of an adopted child is no different from the flesh-and-blood Son of God, Jesus, and us. He has brought us up to that same level of love and grace. Some of us don't have this positive, intimate image of our fathers. Your daddy might have been abusive or absent. And Jesus presents a different style then from what you have known. I think of one woman who had a difficult father, and she made the express decision that her family was going to be different. In her family, love would be expressed. In her family, blessings would be offered instead of curses. In her family, God would not be just recognized at the dinner table, but followed closely each hour of the day. She made the decision that life would be different. The astrologers from Persia, Persia, the Magi, the wise men, we don't know what to call them, I guess, but they're all of those. 
They left their home and their families to search for the meaning of this new star in the sky, this new light. At King Herod's in Jerusalem, they stopped, ironically, to ask where they would find a rival king of the Jews. And perhaps foreshadowing how God would work through non-Jews after delivering their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, these magi heeded God's warning in a dream to avoid Herod, and they returned home by a different route. I've heard that this is the turning point of when men stopped asking for directions. (laughs) That's not in the Bible, though. (laughs) But here we are at the beginning of a new year. The last year at Calvary has been difficult. We have made some painful cost-cutting decisions. We have lost a competent musician. We have said goodbye to some very special people. And during that same year, we have said hello to some very special people whom God has led to Calvary. We've made strategic decisions that will help the church and the community in the future. And new and competent people have stepped into leadership positions. At the beginning of 2012, we don't know the decisions that will face us this year, or we don't know most of them. But we do know who will be accompanying us through them. The same God who guided Mary and Joseph, the same God who inspired Simeon and Anna, the same God who created the stars in the sky for the Magi to follow, this is the same eternal God who has adopted us as children and walks with us as a loving parent into and through every decision we face and their consequences. And this is the God we invite into our lives at the kickoff of the year.